Spend your summer mornings with us. News, information, conversation, controversy, and fun. The Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe. Brought to you by WVU Medicine. But you got to have friends. The feelings are so strong. You got to have friends to make that day last long. I had some friends, but they're gone. Something came and took them away, and from the dusk till the dawn. Here is where I'll stay. Well, good morning, good friend. Welcome to the program, 809, almost 810 as a matter of fact, here on the Watchdog Morning Show, our number deuce of our Thursday edition. As always, you're part of the program if you choose to by using the Frio Stack Auction Service text line at 304-214-1600 or the Frio Stack Auction Service hotline at 304-232-8255. I still think some fog is floating around outside. It will burn off, but we're going to have a... Uh, High day, high temperature in the low 80s today. However, Adam Fike says it will be warm and uncomfortable because we'll have high humidity uh, during the day today. Sunny skies, though, not a bad day. Just going to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's 64 right now, Wheeling, Ohio County Airport. 63 at the Highlands. 62 in Elm Grove. And we're up to 61, Howard. 61 degrees here at the Robinson Otter Group Studios, downtown Wheeling in the heart of the Ohio Valley. Have you noticed, I, I, I heard a commercial during, maybe not this break, one of the earlier breaks, and I see it on TV all the time. Have you noticed how heavily they're pushing these British TV shows again? They can push all they want. I you're, mean, you're they, not, they can push all they want. I would turn the TV off. Before, before. you'd watch? Now, I found one, I told you, on Showtime. It was a detective, kind of like a whodunit. Yeah. But that's the only one ever. First of all, I can't understand them. I know they're speaking English. But what are they but saying? Pip, pip, cheerio. Yeah. You don't, you don't What's that, that mean? I don't know what they're talking about. Um, I, I was listening to a commercial on this station earlier for BritBox, which is a streaming service where you can watch all these British shows. And um, Acorn is one that I see advertised on TV all the time, a streaming uh, British service called Acorn. Um, I don't have an antipathy towards them instinctively the way you do, but I, very, 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 very few British shows do I do I watch. Now, our colleague Lola Miller loves them. You know, she's she just oh, there's a new new show on BritBox. Really? Have you been to the? Have you watched the BBC this week? No, haven't. I just no. Um, but it just I've just it just seems as if they're 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 trying to take us back. That's what it is. You know, after 1776, you know, we were on our own. Now they're trying to take us back. They think we're we're weak. We're weak. They want to take control again. So we're going to get the Brit Box and Acorn and other TV, British TV programs. If you're a Brit TV fan, text me and tell me. and t explain, to me explain to me why. 304-214-1600. Uh, uh, unlike Bob, I don't think the accent's hard to understand. Actually, it's kind of, what's the word I want to use? It's kind of fun to hear them, you know, oh, I say, as detective, I say, should we be able to uh, investigate this but I just I I don't I just don't get into it. But I can't you can really it. understand what they just said. That, that's why I need the subtitles because yeah I understand and I'm, I I speak English I believe, but I I don't know what they just said. You know what what <laughs> what? It's kind of listen to Donnie Roberts. <laughs> um, anyways, it's just an observation, just an observation there that I thought uh, it seems like 
Uh, we're seeing a lot of those. See, you go back to Benny Hill. You weren't paying attention to what anybody was saying back in those days, Howard. You were well, just watching the jiggly. Yeah, I was, yeah, but Benny Hill was a great show. You know, had wonderful, uh, wonderful, um, uh, uh, wonderful uh, cast. A cast. That's what I was looking for. A wonderful cast of characters there. Yes, absolutely correct. And I sometimes say half the audience doesn't understand. Ninety percent of the audience doesn't know what we're talking about with Benny Hill. But that whole uh, Monty Python, is it? That whole stuff. I mean, it does nothing for me. Really? Absolutely nothing. I would get up. Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I would be polite, uh, but I would get up and I would excuse myself. And I would say, you know what? (laughs) I'm at it, but I can't stand this. I'm out of here. Coming up in the next hour of the show, my friend Matt Robeson, political analyst, former congressional staffer, former campaign consultant, is in with us. We're going to discuss the Trump indictments and also... Is part of that, but beyond that, why so much of our system seems to be falling apart? Why, the example I keep using, the Alabama legislature had a, 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 a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, and they went basically, yeah, 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 we're not going to do it. Uh, when, did we, when did we stop following the rule of law? Uh, Matt and I will talk about that coming up. Uh, also, uh, I've got an interesting story about tipping. I, we talk about tipping too much, but... If the kids of today grow up to be the way they are, what they're today now, Bob, they, tipping may go away because the kids of today aren't tipping. I've got some numbers for you. We'll share that with you. However, uh, coming up next, 1968, the year that broke politics. Luke Nichter has written the book, and he's with us straight ahead here on the Watchdog Morning Show. Coming up on Metro News Hotline. On the Thursday edition of the show, we'll be live at Ball Toyota in the Patrick Street Plaza to talk Mountaineer football. Jermaine Lucier from Gizmodo.com in the 3 o'clock hour. Larry Gross from Mountain Stage at 4. Kevin Kinder, BlueGoldNews.com at 5.33. Plus your calls, texts, tweets, interrupt in our question of the day. Metro News Hotline with Dave Weekly. Weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 at WVMetroNews.com and on this Metro News station. Are you or your loved ones facing a serious legal battle? The Law Office of Paul Harris wants you to know you aren't alone. Do you need someone that's not afraid to go to trial and fight for your rights? Attorney Paul Harris and his team are willing to go where most firms are not. The courtroom. With a successful track record in civil litigation, criminal defense, including tax issues and health care fraud, Harris Law Office will fight for their clients by offering the most aggressive representation in and out of court. Call Paul Harris at Harris Law Office for a free consultation. 304-232-5300. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www. Most of us are faced with uncertainty every day. Your job, your finances, sporting events, schooling for your children, and so much more. With so much uncertainty surrounding you, there is one auto dealership that you can be certain about, and that's Doan Ford. You can be certain that you always get a great deal and the best service afterwards. Being in business for over 50 years has given Doan Ford the reputation of being a strong, reliable dealership. Be certain. Choose Doan Ford. Online at DoanFord.com. I'm not buying till I check Doan Ford. Everyone appreciates the Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe. Even Governor Justice. Howard, you're a good man, and I appreciate all you do every day. Thank you, sir. Weekdays, 7 to 10 a.m. on The Watchdog. Oh, there's something so real about living local. 
Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. It paid for me to be one of the first people in my family to go to college. That education got me to the first day at my dream job, which I could still hold while I served part-time. That job, along with the benefits I got through the West Virginia Army National Guard, helped me buy my first home. I also know that I'll be one of the first to respond if the Ohio Valley ever needs me during a natural disaster. I'm Sergeant Andrea Gump, and if you'd like to join my team, visit www.nationalguard.com WV for more information, or check out our Instagram or Facebook at WeGuardWestVirginia. On FM, on AM, online, on demand, and on video. We are where you are. The Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe is here now. Watchdog Morning Show on a Thursday. Coming up next hour, uh, Matt Robeson, a former uh, political consultant, campaign uh, campaign consultant and congressional staffer, uh, and one of our regular political analysts. He and I are going to talk about the Trump indictments. I'm going to talk, too, about why it seems like so much of the uh, uh, of our society is collapsing. You know, the belief in the rule of law is falling down. We'll talk about a number of different things. Matt and I will kick that around coming up in the next hour of the show. Right now, let's talk about 1968. Bob, do you remember 1968? I was six years old, but yes, I do remember it. I was a young teen, um, and I remember quite well. Uh, uh, Vietnam, women's lib, we called it women's lib at the time, civil rights movement in high dudgeon, um, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Bobby Kennedy, all of those were highlights of the year. I guess probably because I was not yet of voting age, I wasn't as actively uh, following the political campaign of 68. I was aware of Johnson and, and uh, Nixon, and, and I was aware of Hubert Humphrey, uh, who seemed like such a pleasant guy. And, of course, George Wallace got into that race. But I never really followed it particularly closely. My guest here this morning, Luke Nichter, has written a book called 1968, The Year That Broke Politics, and he focuses on that, that election. Uh, you see that as a pivotal... Uh, Luke, good morning, first of all. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. You see that as a pivotal year for, for politics, right? Well, I, I, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to talk to you. Uh, I, um, you know, 68, that election was arguably the most divisive, you know, in modern U.S. history. And I think that era, just kind of hearing your introduction there, is, is probably the era that most closely resembles our own today. I, I don't think we're there quite yet, but here it is 55 years later. We're talking about 1968, and it might take that long from now to understand this era today. That's a good point. Look back on that. It was a very fractious era, a very divided era. Um, and the the campaigns were, I don't, I don't think they were, maybe they weren't, maybe they were, you can tell me. I don't think they were as nasty, but they clearly were very divisive, very divided. We had distinct choices. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a couple of moderates battling it out there. Well, they were distinct choices. And, and also, I think, uh, the candidates, as well as the American people, were just reacting to the news of that year, which seemed to unfold month by month. 
Uh, I would say not only the wars you mentioned, uh, the draft was tearing the country apart at home, um, certainly. Uh, the assassinations that you mentioned, I'm mean, like every month sort of events would unfold that were completely you know, unpredictable just the month before. Yeah, and and it, and, it, and again, I was a I was a young teen at the time, but it seems like every one was another body blow. It was like, oh my God, what what's next? What's next? It is. It is. And, you know, and I, you know, I think presidents, uh, regardless of one's politics, you know, are used to governing during some kind of a crisis, whether political, economic, social, cultural, military. And you look at that kind of, call it the Johnson-Nixon era of the mid to late 60s, I think you check all those boxes for crises. And I think maybe more recently, to use the term the Trump-Biden era, I think you might check all those boxes. Uh, Nixon's longtime speechwriter, Ray Price, once told me, if the 1860s were an actual civil war, the 1960s were a proxy civil war. And, of course, more and more people say something similar about America today. Yeah, that's, that, that's a really good point. In the election, of course, the introduction of George Wallace was a huge deal. Uh, again, I didn't follow the election as closely as I should because I wasn't of voting age. But I sure remember George Wallace, and I sure remember him being, being uh, part of that whole era and of that whole election. And, and, and he made a big, huge difference in that election in terms of, of, of how, he, how his votes were counted, right? Counted, right? You've you've got that right. You know, um, it's about once a generation that we have a third-party challenger who really does make a difference. We haven't seen something like this since maybe Ross Perot in this country. Uh, There's talk of another one maybe next year, possibly. Uh, And I'll tell you something else. You know, when I see a new political book, the cynic in me kind of figures out, well, what's the author's take? You know, what's their agenda? Which, you know, who are their favorites? And I think in a book like this. Uh, I don't take a political side. I, I have kind of a something-for-everyone approach. And so what I do is I present the four major sides, which are really different, as you say. Outgoing President Lyndon Johnson, uh, his Vice President Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, uh, Republican nominee Richard Nixon, the former Vice President, and, and as you say, former and future Governor George Wallace, in a way that I think the families and former staffers from each of these sides who talk to me would recognize. And my ultimate focus is really kind of on why the American people ultimately voted the way they did in that insane year, and also how LBJ maneuvered throughout the year. Most books discount him after he withdrew from the ballot. Uh, but I, I will not seek, in- nor will I accept, the nomination of my party. You, I think you got it word for word right there. Uh, but I don't think that what I argue is that was not a withdrawal from politics. He, he shifted to actively influence the choice of his successor and his legacy. Let's talk about Wallace for a minute. Uh, we here are particularly interested in this third-party concept because Joe Manchin from West Virginia is one of the names being bandied about as part of that no-labels group that might consider a third-party candidacy. Uh, but it seems like that is more of a moderate approach, not doesn't seem like it, that's what their their intent is to be, more of a moderate approach. Wallace was not moderate at all. He came in, no pun intended, guns blazing. I mean, he, he, was a, he had a strong, forceful point of view, which represented a pretty significant percentage of the people at the time. Well, I think Wallace, Wallace, I think, I, I think it's fair to say, struck a deep chord yes. with his followers, no matter how, how many they were. 
because I think a lot of those people, those folks, felt that their views weren't being represented anywhere else by any other candidate, and that was powerful. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not somebody who's going to say, well, that's exactly what Trump did. But I think there is, you know, the last year that Democrats won that blue-collar labor vote, because they own that since FDR and the New Deal, was 1964. Hubert Humphrey lost it, or at least lost a part of it. And the Democratic Party, the traditional base of that vote, has been trying to get it back ever since. And they struggled. The heart of much of the debate during that year, oh, I shouldn't say, I would say much of it, not all of it, because Wallace, of course, was particularly concerned about civil rights. But heart of much of the 1968 presidential debate was all about um, the Vietnam War. It was. It, 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 you know, and you look at all the events of that year. The year started with a big bang, and that bang was in Southeast Asia. It was the Tet Offensive, this kind of multi-city, uh, seemingly spontaneous attack on, on our military installations, even on our embassy complex in Saigon, right at the time when Americans were led to believe the war was going better. And so the, the outset of the campaign was about Vietnam. But I think what you see, whether you look at the rhetoric of the candidates or the polling data, is there's a shift after those assassinations that you mentioned. Vietnam always is on the minds of voters, but when you look at the domestic concerns, people are concerned about crime and unrest and violence and arson, and when you add up those individual categories, after those assassinations, there's a shift. They begin to outpoll the singular concern about Vietnam. So I think there is a shift, and I, my book is different in the sense that I think people voted more on those issues, inflation, ones that we can relate to today than ultimately on foreign policy in Vietnam. It's interesting. I, that's not the perspective I would have thought about as I think back and reflect on that. I, I tend to think of it more of the, the pot-boiling issues of the day, but I, I suppose all the time it's always about our pockets, right? I mean, in the, in the end, that's what we tend to vote for no matter what year it is or who the candidates are. Oh, I, I think, you know, just in recent years, People talk about, well, how, how political of an issue will gas prices be? You know, we all saw the way fuel, whether it's at home or in our tanks, how much they went up. And I thought, you know, the one that's even more divisive is at the supermarkets. Because, you know, at least with the gas, some people have electric cars. They may choose to drive less. You know, there's a way to mitigate that a little bit. We all have, you to, have eat. to eat. We yeah, all have to eat. You got it. <laughs> and that affects all classes and all political parties, no matter what you drive. And some of us, I only speak from experience here, some of us like to eat well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll, I'll join you there. <laughs> so, the trip to the supermarket. Uh, well, I don't get. I'm not permitted to go to the supermarket. My wife won't let me go because I buy too much stuff. But anyway, back to the election. There's an interesting story you tell, which I had never heard before, about Billy Graham's involvement uh, in this election. Well, and I wish I could tell you I was so brilliant to have thought about this at the beginning of the book. It was really a conversation I had with former Vice President Walter Mondale in Minneapolis in late 2017. He was emphatic that Johnson did not want Humphrey to win, and he repeated it over and over. He had Humphrey's seat in the Senate. He was his co-chair in 68, and he told me he became close to Humphrey in the 1970s. They talked about 68 many times, and I never heard this before, and he challenged me to figure out what was Johnson's mindset. And then as I called around to archives at Wheaton College, where uh, Graham's alma mater, just outside of Chicago, 
he he died in at age 99 in 2018, and they began to open the first parts of his diary. So I've seen part of it, and I was a, it, it's really the centerpiece of some of the new evidence in this book. And what it shows is that Graham was effectively a messenger between Johnson and Nixon, Governor Reagan in California, uh, former President uh, Eisenhower, and he passed messages. There's verbatim content in there that's not anywhere else in the presidential libraries. And at the heart of that, uh, right after Labor Day in 68, Nixon made a multi-point promise to LBJ, a message carried by Graham, that Nixon as president would never criticize Johnson by name, give him credit for Vietnam when it's all over, consult with LBJ in retirement, and to do everything he could do to give uh, LBJ a good place in history. And I think, uh, I only imagine if that had leaked out at the time. Uh, but I think that's exactly what LBJ wanted to hear at a time that many in his own party were criticizing him. Did not Johnson, and I don't know that this is really publicly talked about, he, as I said earlier, he famously said he will not seek nor will he accept his nomination, his party's nomination. Did he not try to re-enter the race at some point or at least consider it? I sure think he considered it. And, and, you know, there's nothing static about the year 1968, and Johnson was reacting to it just the way that we were. Uh, you have to, you know, he evolves. I think initially when he withdrew, he saw his best successor as sort of liberal, you know, Republican Governor Nelson Rockefeller as being a good successor. But that, that it would take the brand name, the good looks, and the money of a Rockefeller to beat a Kennedy, because Bobby Kennedy was beginning to surge at that time. But then when Kennedy was killed, effectively giving the nomination to Humphrey, um, I think you see Johnson gradually shifts more into the Nixon column. A lot of the Johnson people told me that Johnson believed to be president, you had to have a killer instinct, mm -hmm. was what they said. And he didn't think Humphrey had it, I, although, as you said in your intro, a very, very nice man. Well, let's talk about Humphrey the nice man. That's just where I was going to go next. He was called the happy warrior. Was he just too nice a guy to be in that race, especially with Nixon and uh, Wallace? I, look, I, I'm a, I'm a blue-collar kid who grew up in Ohio in the Midwest. Uh, I got along great with the Humphrey people, and we had some of the best conversations. Um, I, I, I really admire Hubert Humphrey as a person. I think maybe in 68 he was just mismatched to the era. There's something about 68 demanded a kind of brass-knuckles mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. approach. I think Humphrey's best chance might have been that West Virginia primary in 1960, uh, when, you know, the country wasn't at war, and it could focus on kind of bread-and-butter uh, issues for the Democratic Party, Democratic prosperity, Social Security, jobs, the economy, education. That was, that was you know, that was Humphrey's, uh, all issues. By 68, it was a much more visceral time. I think maybe, but, but I think he's someone who could have been president. He's not just another also-ran. He was a special politician, but I think he missed his window. Nixon used what was called the Southern strategy, which a lot of folks think is what really helped put him uh, in, in office. Uh, how, how successful was the Southern strategy? You know, anybody can Google kind of Nixon Southern strategy, but I think a lot more has been made of that than it really is. Uh, you know, I think if you, it, because of the effect of Wallace, as you mentioned, if this had been a two-man race, Nixon and Humphrey, they each had been forced to actually campaign in the South for those Wallace voters. But with Wallace in the race and, and winning basically all those states, Neither one had to really compete. You know, my, uh, my take on Nixon's Southern strategy is different. If you go back to those red and blue maps, as we have for every election, of Eisenhower and Nixon, 52, 56, 
Eisenhower, because if we was, began to peel off some of those traditional Southern Democratic states. They won Virginia twice. They won Louisiana in 56. I think Nixon might have won six, uh, Texas in 68, had it not been for LBJ. So I think Nixon's goal, really, in 68 was to kind of win back and, or at least maintain some of that Eisenhower-Nixon territory. But I think with Wallace in the race, that was the wild card. I, I mean, at that point, they could concede all of those voters who might have been more concerned about race uh, to Humphrey and not have to try to match him on that rhetoric. I don't remember what the percentage was, but Wallace got a fairly significant percentage of the vote as a third-party candidate. What do, what do we learn or what can we learn or what should we learn from his candidacy that might reflect on today? Oh, I would say I take two, two quick takeaways. Uh, I would say, one, Wallace was really in 68, and he was, an, at least to be clear, Wallace was an evolution. We've talked about how all these politicians evolved. They're not static. Sometimes in the history books, they're, they're always the same person. Wallace in 62, 63, I would say was really a sort of segregationist, making kind of direct racist appeals. Mm -hmm. By 68, he was much more reformed. I, you know, I would call him kind of a southern populist conservative with a, who had national political aspirations that had to make appeals that go well beyond the votes of Alabamians. And so I think he was really the first full-bore campaign anti-elite, anti-establishment. You know, he didn't say drain the swamp, but he, if he, those words had occurred to him, he might have said them. <laughs> and so I think every populist since then has borrowed elements, you know, of his campaign and his rhetoric. rhetoric. And so what I'm watching for uh, in, the, in 2024 is where do these voters go to? Uh, part of it depends on whether Trump is and, and, and ends, up, ends up running. But I think, you know, who, who, where do those voters go in this next cycle is going to be fascinating to watch because those, again, those used to be the heart of the kind of FDR, New Deal, Democratic coalition. Uh, and, and, you know, their home is not really very stable these days. Well, the home of many Democrats and Republicans isn't very stable these days. I mean, I think, I think I'm right when I say most, and certainly many, Democrats don't care for Biden and Republicans don't care for Trump, and nobody cares for either one, and that is likely going to be our choice. It may not be, and I mean, particularly with Trump in trouble, something could occur between election and election day. Um, but isn't that what kind of opens that door up for a third and there's a difference, by the way, I should point out, and I think you would concur, between a third party and a third candidate. Um, yes. No labels is talking about creating a third party with candidates. George Wallace was simply a third candidate. At any rate, is it, so with, with this affection for both of the likely candidates, doesn't it open the door for a third something? I think the lesson of Wallace is that a third party or a third candidate can play a spoiler role, but it, but it has almost impossible odds of winning. You know, I, you look at Capitol Hill today, I, and I, I think there's very few issues that bring parties together across the aisle. It's concern over China. Uh, it's concern over maybe AI, concern over social media companies. But I'll tell you one that unites them even more quickly than any of those, it's third-party challenges. <laughs> if you want to go into a state and, and navigate that process to get on the ballot, you immediately, on day one, make enemies of the leaders of both parties. That's why it's so remarkable that Wallace got on the ballot in all 50 states, everywhere but the District of Columbia, which kept him out. And to do that, to navigate the legal challenges, the courtroom challenges, 50 sets of state laws, is just incredible. So I would say if, if a third-party challenge or a third candidate can navigate that first hurdle, that's the most important one. 
Luke, I appreciate your time this morning. 1968, the year that broke politics, uh, a good run through the political scene in 1968. As I said, I was a young teen. I was very involved as a young teen in a lot of the Vietnam War things and civil rights things and so on, but I was too young to vote, therefore I was too, although not, not too far. One of the issues I fought for, one of my very first radio shows back when I was a kid was um, trying to get the 18-year-olds the right to vote. So, but but I, I didn't follow the politics as cl closely as I should have at the time. So this is an interesting book for me, particularly for that, since I am a child of that era. Um, it's a good book for anybody who wants to read it. Um, you're going to do like 1972, the year that really broke politics, or maybe 1990, <laughs> uh, 2024, the year that everything fell apart. Are you well, working on yeah, any of those well, things? That, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, whether whether 68 was the first time it broke, or whether it's been broken ever since then to the present day, there's just something about if I can use the term culture wars of the 60s that resonates with our era today and I don't think history repeats itself but I think we can take certain lessons and ultimately hey we lived through the 60s maybe we can live through this time too well, I hope so I appreciate uh, your time today I appreciate your book thanks very much I'd love to talk with you again sometime we'll hopefully maybe have a chance to hook up again I'd enjoy it thank you very much thank you I appreciate it Luke Nichter uh, the book is 1968 the year that broke politics um, like I said, Bob, I was, I remember, I mean, I was semi-active as a young teen, um, very active and very aware of the Vietnam War, civil rights and so on, but I guess that was just because I was too young to vote, I didn't pay attention. I knew Nixon was running and I knew uh, Johnson had withdrawn and I knew Wallace was a bad guy, that's the way I thought, you know, but I didn't really pay attention to the ins and outs of it. And how about uh, LBJ, you know, sticking it to his uh, running mate, his, yeah. his VP, uh, Humphrey, Again, Howard, I think history, I might not live to see it, but it's going to show just what a, just, just a sinister man that LBJ was. And that's if he didn't have anything with uh, Kennedy getting clipped. But if he had something to do with that, then, he, then he's up there maybe all time. I, I'm, I'm not going to go quite that far, but I think the point that, that Luke made is, is probably true. Nixon and, Nixon and Johnson are brawlers, you know, hard fighters. Um, backstabbers, all those things. And Humphrey was just the nicest guy. I mean, as far as I could tell at the time, and in retrospect, seems to be true, he was just the nicest guy. And we know what happens to nice guys. They get their legs cut off, right? Or get your head blew off in Dallas, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he was a nice guy. And I, so I can see where Johnson would say, geez, this wimp, he can't be. Because Johnson was a tough president. Again, setting aside... The, the, as far as you want to go, he was a tough, tough president, and that's the way he ran things. And he, he you know, and when he was a, a Senate Majority Leader, I guess he was when when he ran Capitol Hill. It, you know, it was it was it was my way or the highway. You come into my office, boy, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, and if not, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. That, that's the kind of guy that Johnson was. Now he did wonderful things. The Great Society was a great thing. He advanced the, the movement of civil rights, a great thing. But he had uh, what should we call them? Personal flaws. Personal flaws, for sure. I thought about Jumbo, are you? <laughs> was that a flaw? I'm not sure that was a hell of a flaw. <laughs> Wish I had a flaw like that. <laughs> I'm not going to elucidate. I, I assume you all know with Johnson. What Johnson's Jum Johnson. What, what Jumbo was. It was Johnson's Johnson, which he himself re affectionately referred to as Jumbo. Jumbo. Yeah, exactly.
uh, this, this, I have not read this book. I've read some excerpts from it, and i got to get Luke to send me a copy because that looks like a good book. 1968, The Year That Broke Politics. Uh, Luke Nichter is the author. He is a professor at Columbia University, among other things. And um, He's the kind of guy, by the way, he does big shows. Uh, we're really lucky to get him on this show, and uh, we've been getting a lot of that lately, and I appreciate that. I think somebody lies about who we are. I think they think we're better than <laughs> we really are because we've gotten some pretty good guests lately. All right, 841, 19 to the hour. It's the Watchdog Morning Show for a, a Thursday. Uh, I, I want to talk about third-party candidates, a little bit more on this new labels thing that we talk about almost every day. Axios had a piece that I want to share with you uh, coming up. Next hour, Matt Robeson is with us, and maybe you've got something on your mind. Feel free to bring it aboard, and we'll talk about it here on the Watchdog Morning Show. But first, Taylor Long has Ohio Valley headlines. Good Thursday morning, everyone. I'm Taylor Long with your 7 News headlines on this August the 3rd. The man convicted of the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history has been given the death penalty. A federal jury in Pittsburgh has recommended the death penalty for 50-year-old Robert Bowers for killing 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Several other victims were injured in the rampage. The shooter's attorney has offered a guilty plea in exchange for a life sentence, but prosecutors refused, arguing Bowers held a deep-seated animosity towards Jews and immigrants and showed no remorse for his actions. Those in the courtroom said Bowers showed little emotion when he was sentenced. A judge will impose the sentence at a later date. And the jury in the William Carmen murder trial was shown extremely graphic and disturbing evidence yesterday. Many of the photos gathered from the event were hard to look at. On day three of the murder trial, Sergeant Rob Safry testified on behalf of the prosecution. He responded to the call on the day of the victim's murder and gathered video and photographic evidence that depicted her brutal murder. The evidence was shown in detail to the jury and taken into evidence with no objections by the defense. Carmen's trial will continue today, and the defense is expected to start presenting their witnesses and evidence. Stay with 7 News for updates as we continue to follow this trial. And some good news for the Harrison County Sheriff's Office and the county. Officials are set to break ground on the brand new Harrison County Jail in two weeks. The jail will have 60 beds, different housing units, a full service laundry and a kitchen. There will also be a reception and visitation unit along with two Sally ports for transportation. Sheriff Joe Myers says it's been a long time coming and having a jail in the county will save time, money and bring in more jobs. The groundbreaking ceremony is set for August 17th at 11 a.m. at the old U.S. Army Reserve. All are welcome to attend. That was a look at your headlines. Have a terrific Thursday. I'm Taylor Long, working for you. You want a hospital rising up to the challenges of today's health care demands. WVU Medicine Wheeling Hospital delivers the right care close to home. Developing new and exclusive services. Recruiting top surgeons. Featuring the highest level of orthopedic surgery, improving healing, rehab time, and outcomes. Offering innovative heart care through our WVU Heart and Vascular Institute. Establishing outstanding urology services with a highly experienced urologist and staff. Providing comprehensive, world-class women's health services. And equipping the WVU Cancer Institute at Wheeling Hospital with cutting-edge science for the highest standard of care. We embody the mountaineer spirit, building upon strong traditions, moving forward with compassion. WVU Medicine Wheeling Hospital, delivering the right care at the right place at the right time. 
Sunshine, swimming pools, green grass, and great conversation. It's summertime, and this is the Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe. Don't know when I've been so blue. Don't know what's come over you. You found someone new. And don't it make my brown eyes blue? Crystal Gale. Don't it make my brown eyes blue? Well, my eyes are blue. That's a pretty song. I love this song. I always have. This is a great song. And I love Crystal Gale, too. Well, Howard, you'd really love this uh, picture of her. I would say uh, <laughs> 70s. Yeah. And there she is in a tube top. Yeah, baby. Yeah. I'll have to keep that up here, Howard. She has that long hair, right? That's what I, I ain't like. looking at her hair, Howard. But yes, there, there it is. There, there's it. Yes. Oh, now you see it. Now you see it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always like Crystal Gale, and this this is a great song. Don't it, don't it make my brown eyes blue. Uh, 8.45, quarter till the hour here on the Watchdog Morning Show. 64 at the airport, 63 at the Highlands, 62 uh, in Elm Grove and 61 here at the Robinson Auto Group Studios, downtown Wheeling in the heart of the Ohio Valley. It's going to be a warm and sticky day today, according to Adam Fike, because we're going to see uh, humidity up high. Temperature not too bad, though, low 80s with sunny skies throughout the day today. Just beware, it could be a little sticky, sticky. In my TV watching last night, Howard, I came across something that uh, just kind of blew my mind a little bit, and I, w- I want to see if you believe this or if it you say, oh, I, I can see that happening. Mind-blowing. Let's say the year just, I didn't write the year down, but let's say the year was 1907 in, in, that, in that period. Uh, they're going to build a brand-new building. And uh, back in those days, they, they were big on uh, putting time capsules into the cornerstone. Right. You with me? Yep. So, again, early 1900s. So they put some gold in there. Uh, they put some newspapers and there's a kid standing there with his dad, and the kid has a frog. This is not a Robert Bird story, but he has a frog. Okay. It's a regular bullfrog. All right. And his dad snatches the frog and says, here, put that in there with it. And <laughs> they killed did. the frog. The frog wasn't laughing, but everybody else got a big kick out of it. They put the frog in. Seventy years goes by. And they're going to demolish the building. And they say, ah, there's a, there's time, a time capsule there. we got to open that up. There's the frog laying there. And they picked the frog up. And this is where the story, you probably know where this is going, Howard. No. The frog starts kicking. No. The frog <laughs> comes alive. Oh, no, no, no. And no. the people see it and they say, they, they make this, they give the frog a name now. Well, sure. And he is a town Lord. hero. He, <laughs> my goodness, they can't believe this. And then one morning, someone sits him in his cage or whatever. You're besides sure the, this isn't a Mark Twain story? I'm looking no, for the, no, no, the punchline no. here. Again, it's almost unbelievable, right? 70 years. 70. And uh, so someone takes the, the frog. He is the town hero now. I don't know. A couple years go by. And someone sits the frog in his cage by a window seal. Okay. And the frog gets pneumonia, and the frog dies. Oh, no, no. This is, no, no, He no, survived no. all those no, years by himself no. in the time so, capsule. This is a story from somewhere. Uh, look no. it up. I'm look not, it no. up. It's not folklore. The, the, it's the, the frog, first of all, the, the frog didn't live 70 years. A frog doesn't live 70 years. And secondly, 
the idea that, oh, he lived 70 years and then he burned up on the windowsill. Well, he's got pneumonia, Howard. He got pneumonia. So you're saying they had to pull the old switcheroo. When they opened it up, they said, hey, remember the frog thing? Let's see if we can generate a little publicity for our nice town. We'll do a real quick switcheroo and we'll act like the frog comes alive. You think they went to that great lengths to do that? No, a little Google search here, just out of curiosity. Frogs live an average of two to ten years. <laughs> two to ten. Two to ten. All I'll right? try to do a little bit more research on this, Howard. Uh, but there's oh, a wait, town wait, out wait, there. Wait, 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 wait. Second note here. That was frogs in the wild. Frogs in captivity. Well, that would have been captivity. Well, still ten to twenty years. That's no. Could make it seventy. No. Because you're thinking, okay, some what species did he eat? have been recorded living as much as 30 years. I got nothing. I, I got no 70s here. I got no 70s here. Unless he ate the newspaper. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but even, I mean, let's assume that he. Somehow. They claim it's true. They claim that it happened. Who is they? Whatever this town is. I should have wrote some better notes down, Howard. I think, no, I think you, you hit the nail earlier when you said it's not a. Robert Byrd's story, or it's it's a Mark Twain, uh, it's a Mark Twain story of some <laughs> that kind. That they killed the frog. Well, they didn't even Twain? take care Wasn't, of it. Didn't he have like the jumping frog of Calaveras County or something? I don't think this that? was that county, but I'll I'll, I'll do a little bit Frogs more on, investigating. Uh, no, no seventy year You're old. You're saying frog. there's not a shot. And, and he didn't die of pneumonia suddenly when he got out of the. No, that's just um no. Did anybody look in the bottom? Like, the, was there a hole? Was there a the, hole? You know, did, did the old frog just just disintegrate and a new frog come back in? You know, did a frog make it? No, I just, just no. I'm just, just no, no. Ten to the hour here on the Watchdog Morning Show. Reminder, uh, our friends at Frio and Stack Auction have an auction underway right now. It's an online auction only. You can go to frioandstack.com. Click bid now, and you can place bids. You can look up all the items they have available. They've got collective, and they'll start winding this down on Monday. So if you're interested now, tomorrow, over the weekend, good time to go to the website, start picking the things you're interested in placing your bids, because beginning on Monday morning at 10 a.m., they will start to wind this down. They'll do some of it at 10 and and just work their way through the day. So be prepared for that. Um, They've got a bunch of collectibles, vintage kitchenware, uh, tractors, Vintage car parts and tools will be available. So if you're interested in any of these things, uh, first of all, you can go and take a look at them uh, at freeonstack.com. And then if you want to bid, uh, you sign yourself up to be a, a bidder and click bid now and, uh, and you can bid. Uh, that's, again, uh, freeonstack.com. Bidding closes Monday. Pickup is August the 10th, which is, you got a calendar in there? I don't have one here. Well, let's see. Uh, tomorrow's uh, today's the third, so, so I guess uh, it would be Thursday. Today. Week today, yeah. Okay, yeah. next Thursday, August the tenth. I could have probably figured that out myself. That's what I'm here for. But I didn't, so that's okay. Uh, yeah, from noon to six. Pickup is August tenth, noon to six. Oh, and I should tell you, this is at one twenty-eight Harding Avenue, which we think is in Parkview. But Google it just to play it safe. Yeah, put it on your GPS because if you go up to Parkview and start driving around, driving around, mm-hmm. looking for uh, Harding Avenue, and then you go up and there's Grant. Knock There's Taylor. <laughs> Where's Harding? Yeah, and if if you find it, knock on the door, and it's the wrong one. Yeah, you know, you so don't don't uh, don't blame us. Uh, anyways, freeonstack.com. That's where you want to go. 
How much could a cyber attack cost your business? The costs stemming from a cyber attack can vary tremendously, but are extremely significant. Recent studies have shown that the average cost of a data breach to small business can range from $120,000 to $1.2 million. In addition to financial loss, companies also suffer downtime, lost opportunities, and data recovery expenses that can all quickly add up. Could your organization survive a cyber incident? If you are unsure if you are doing enough to protect your data, reputation, and dollars from cyber criminals, contact the team at Omni Strategic Technologies today. Omni has the right tools and support to help keep your business protected. Call 304-242-7600 and schedule your free consultation today or visit omniperforms.com. Omni Strategic Technologies, the only cybersecurity and advisory firm that the watchdog trusts. Ready, set, go get your Toyota today. Check out Toyota's wide range of all-wheel and four-wheel drive vehicles, like a sporty Camry or a stylish Corolla, both with great MPGs. Or come in and test drive a new RAV4, Highlander, or Corolla Cross, each with plenty of cargo room so you can be ready for any adventure. Visit buyatoyota.com, the official website for deals. Hurry, offers end April 4th. Toyota, let's go places. A serious injury from an accident can be just the start of your worries. What if you cannot return to work? How do you take care of your family if you're disabled? At Gellner Law Offices, we represent seriously injured people and understand their problem. We know how to get you fair compensation. We will work hard to make sure you get the money you deserve for your losses. Don't go it alone. If you're hurt in an accident, call us at 304-242-2900 or visit us at gellnerlaw.com. We'd like to help. Information, interviews, debates, and discussion, plus an occasional rant with Bob Slider behind the board. This is the Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe. You give your heart to me and then you say Call just a couple of weeks ago. I think we still might be even running a promo about it. E. Gordon Gee was on with Hoppy Kerchival, and the discussion revolved around Bob Huggins' resignation. And E. Gordon Gee said, In no uncertain terms, the university will not accept Mr. Huggins' revocation of his resignation, nor will it reinstate him as head coach of the men's basketball program. When Hoppy Kerchival said, Is there any chance, any at all? E. Gordon Gee said, None. None at all. I think he then said, That ship has sailed. You will recall I raised a question when last week when Huggins was at the TBT um, that I said, we haven't heard much about him. I wonder if he's just kind of called and said, look, guys, forget that. Because that last, you know, I didn't resign letter and so on seemed a little ridiculous. And I thought maybe he came to his senses and said he wasn't going to do that. But my good friend Mr. Kerchival is reporting today uh, at WVMetroNews.com that uh, none of that was the end of the demands. None of that was the end of the demands. Uh, Huggins' attorney from Cleveland, the Cleveland attorney, um, in documents obtained by Metro News through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, asked for several things. They called it a settlement demand. 
Now remember, the, this is this is the guy. At this point, Huggins says, "I did not resign. I'm still the coach." Um, they said that Huggins would resign if number one, he got one and a quarter million dollars. Number two, he got his health insurance through the next year. Number three, he would be installed as head coach emeritus for three years. He would not coach, but he would raise funds and consult with the current team, payment to be negotiated. Huggins would return to his old office, wanted to be back in his old office again. Uh, there would be an agreement for mutual non-disparagement. Neither one would say bad things about the other. Uh, there would be an agreement of a joint statement to publicly resolve this dispute. All of these in a email or a document of some kind, I should be careful how I phrase that, in a document sent from the attorney in Cleveland to the university. The university, and this was on July 11th, uh, the university responded three days later saying that WVU did agree to an amicable resolution to this matter, but they rejected his emeritus coach role and he can't have his office back. He cannot have his office back. Um, this is interesting to me because I thought all of this was off the table. They did leave, WVU did leave open a chance for Huggins to become an ambassador of some kind for the university, but only if he waited three years and let things cool down. Uh, also, only if Huggins acknowledged he actually did resign and he will never again argue otherwise, that he will never enter. This is what the, the university countered with. He will never interfere with the basketball team uh, and he will never take any action that it creates a negative impact on WVU. Hmm. Uh, and they were willing to pay him the one and a quarter million dollars he was he asked for too. So, uh, I guess they just don't want him hanging around. I, that, that's the bottom line. I, honestly, I thought that what they seemed to have agreed to. Now Huggins has not agreed agreed in response, but what they seem to have offered there is actually more than I thought they would offer. I mean, that's that's a ton of money, Howard, and I'll, I'll go to my grave uh, not thinking. But knowing that if he'd have just went to rehab, if he'd have laid yes. low, he'd have coached that team again. Sometime he would have coached again. You know, again, I disagree that he would coach again. But I think he would have been back in good graces. They would have built a statue. He would, have, he would have got his old office back. He would have been able to come in and be coach emeritus and all those kind of things if he hadn't done that last business. Um, uh, so, anyways, this story is at WVMetroNews.com. I am sure that Hoppy Kirchner will talk about it today. Coming up on Statewide Talk Line at 10.06, um, it's uh, based on Freedom of Information Act uh, requests from Metro News uh, to the university, I guess. Yeah, to the university. So there you go. Read more about it. Read more about it at WVMetroNews.com. It is not a news story. It is Hoppy's commentary today. Huggins wanted his office back, emeritus head coach position. So there you go. Check it out. All right, 9 o'clock almost here on the Watchdog Morning Show. We're going back to national politics, to Donald Trump, the indictment, and a few other matters with my friend Matt Robeson. That's coming up on the Watchdog Morning Show. Sixteen hundred WKKX Wheeling FM ninety seven point seven AM thirteen seventy WVLY Moundsville from ABC News. 
I'm Brian Clark. Formal sentencing this morning for the man who killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh almost five years ago. Deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history. During the lengthy Tree of Life Synagogue shooting trial, jurors listened to details about how gunman Robert Bowers purposely came to the synagogue to murder Jews, how he reloaded his assault-style weapon twice and stepped over the bodies of victims looking for others to kill. Howard Feinberg's mother was one of those victims. The jury sat through months of horror and delivered justice to my mom and everyone that was killed and everyone injured and everyone beyond. The same jury that convicted Bowers unanimously recommended that he be sentenced to death. Today, a judge is expected to hand down that sentence. Sherry Preston, ABC News. This afternoon, former President Donald Trump expected in federal court in Washington, D.C., where he will be arraigned on four felony charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. ABC's Aaron Katursky has more from Washington. When he arrives here, Trump is going to be processed in court as a criminal defendant. And he's been through this twice before. But once again, he's going to have to give his social security number, his address, basic information, and have his fingerprints scanned. At no time, though, will he be in handcuffs. And there won't be any mugshot because he's already one of the most photographed people in the country. Republican presidential hopefuls have faced questions about the charges against the frontrunner. That includes the former vice president, Mike Pence, who said Wednesday. Irrespective of the indictment, I, I want the American people to know that I had no right to overturn the election. And then on that day, President Trump asked me to put him over the Constitution, but I chose the Constitution. In Tennessee, two of the members of the state legislature who were expelled for their involvement in a gun control protest on the House floor will try to win back their seats on a full-time basis. Both must advance in, in special elections today. You're listening to ABC News. Happy 62nd birthday, Granddad. Thanks, sweetheart. I got you this. A mug. Oh, thank you. Uh, what does it say? Beware, if you are 60 or older, you may be at increased risk of hospitalization from RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, compared to adults younger than 60. Not all dangers come with warning labels. Talk to your pharmacist or doctor about getting vaccinated against RSV today. Learn more at bewareofrsv.com. Brought to you by Pfizer. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A new, a new lawsuit over diabetes drugs that are now being used to help people lose weight. Demand for Ozempic and Manjaro exploded as people documented their success stories using the drugs, which are approved to treat type 2 diabetes, but can also be prescribed off-label for weight loss. In the new lawsuit, a woman says she lost 150 pounds, but claims the manufacturers failed to adequately warn about the risk of gastroparesis, a condition in which the movement of food out of the stomach slows or stops. She has not yet been officially diagnosed with the condition. It's ABC's Andrew Dimbert. An old disease is making a comeback in the U.S. Around 200,000 cases of leprosy are diagnosed globally every year. Now it's suddenly turning up in the United States, primarily in central Florida. The question